So uh, I think I know most of you. Um, my name's Ken Basinger. I'm a, a pharmacist by trade, and I've been asked by the elders to bring a talk on drugs, medications, biblical counseling, and how we handle drugs. And when they asked me to do this last week, that sounds kind of loud, Wendell. Um, my first thought was, what have y'all been up to that y'all need us talk on drugs? Trucks. No. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering. Um, this is part. This talk that I'm going to do is actually part of the BCDC seminar, the ACBC component that we do for biblical counselors. Uh, if you're familiar with that, every year we alternate between Calvary and Grace Bible Church, and I get to do the drug part. The odd thing today is uh, I come in at the very last weekend after there's been this long groundwork of, of biblical understanding laid, and, you know, so I kind of walk in with the foundation. So today we don't really have that, so I'm going to hit on, I think, some basics that I think you'll want to know. So here we are. Let's talk about drugs. Um, I, I always need to say when I do this talk that Keith Palmer, the associate pastor, who's on the board at ACBC, uh, had put together some of the um, psychosomatic the, uh, talk about man that we'll do a lot today. He put some of this together, and when he asked me to take it over, I, I simply added the drug parts, the medication parts, to help it all sink a little bit, but I always want to thank him for that. Um, several books, let's see where I am. I want you to be aware of one. Can't find my other book. Second. Ah, here it is. First book is "Blame It on the Brain." This is by Ed Welch. Um, by the way, you have two sets of notes back there. There's the regular notes, which is just one page, front and back, and then I've put back there some big boy notes that have most of the conference information with references. So if you want the big boy notes, they're there as well. Yes, you have the big boy notes. Yeah. So Blame It on the Brain is a book that Ed Welch wrote several years ago. It's a great book. You'll see that quoted some today. It's helping you understand how we're designed and uh, making sure that man is still held responsible for his sin. And you can't blame it on anything else. You can't blame it on your brain or any other issues. Um, so no blame shifting. It addresses things like depression, alcoholism, homosexuality, and how the culture uh, looks at that. So he's quoted a few times. Dr. Harl, Charles Hodge uh, wrote a book, Good Mood, Bad Mood. This is a really great book. You'll see that. I'll reference him probably more um, next week. So this will be a two-week series, part one and part two. He wrote Good Mood, Bad Mood. This is a book... He's written on bipolar. He's a physician in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he does a lot of speaking for ACBC. I really enjoy his lectures. But he wrote this book about bipolar, and he was surprised that when he was doing the research, it led him really to depression and how we treat depression with antidepressants. So he talks about this link between this uh, overwhelming uh, surge of people being diagnosed with bipolar how did we get here? And he looks at that from a biblical perspective. 
So this is a, a really good book too. The last book I think I'm going to mention today, which is probably my favorite, and this is a, a book called Will Medicine Stop the Pain? You guys may have seen this. It's written by Elise Fitzpatrick and Laura Hendrickson, and it's a book written from by women to women. But I can tell you, for everyone, this is a great resource to understand how to look at medicines, um, particularly from a female perspective, but I, I really think it applies. I've always thought if I was going to write a book, uh, it, would, it would have a lot of this information. And, and the psychiatrist, Laura Hendrickson, was very influential for me in kind of designing the way I, I look at medicines and how I bring that to a biblical talk. Uh, she's a psychiatrist who has since passed away, but um, her, her life still lives on in many lectures. So both are great, some great resources. Um, yeah, so let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Father, for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together in a free country. And Lord, we don't take that for granted anymore. And we're thankful for that. I pray that you'd bless us this morning with your Holy Spirit as we look uh, at your word and, and also just how you've designed us as our creator. Lord, I pray you'd help us get it right, help us communicate it well. Pray our hearts would be open to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before I get too far and away off into um, other parts of medicines, I, I want to start with Scripture. So let's, if you could turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. I think this is important as you start off to be grounded in the Word and have our, our focus set on Him. We're going to start in verse 13. Colossians 1 verse 13. And you guys can help me out here in a moment. I'll probably stop and comment as we go along. No one has ever claimed that I was short-winded. So, worries. Chapter 1 verse 13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Don't you love baptism? We get to hear the stories of the transformed lives out of darkness and into his light. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When you see that firstborn, it's really a title. It's a position. He is ranked at the height. For by him, all things were created. How many things? All things. Thank you. We're created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. How many? All things. Thank you. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. You might say all things. I think uh, I have the NIS translation, the ESV says that he is preeminent in the highest, loftiest place. I love this section in Colossians because uh, there's two places I know of in Scripture that really position exalting Christ, and then right next to that, he places where is man. 
So God is lifted up, and then he's going to turn his attention to us, and there's a huge gap between those two places. Ephesians 1 and 2 is another place. Verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace to the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. So we start to talk about medications and science and some of these things. We, we don't want to think that somehow, and there's this kind of a view that maybe medicine is some this blurry, cloudy, what do we do with that? Is it under God? Is it scriptural? And what do we do with it? It just seems to be set apart. It's not. It's all under his authority, under Christ. There's no mystery with what God, who he is, and what he's doing through medicine. And here's man's hope in verse 21. Here's the big drop-off. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that would mean we were his enemies, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So I just wanted to highlight that this is where man gets his hope. And this comes to play when we talk about medications because we have to be careful, especially with psych medications, that we're not placing our hope in the wrong thing. And if you go too far into a talk without setting our mind straight... We're going to get off. We're going to get off target. Uh, we want to stay on target. Um, and then here's the caution. This is the warning. I'm going to pick up Colossians 2 next week because he's going to kind of identify what the warning more specifically is. But he tells us, he'll present us before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away, not moved away from what? From the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made minister. We don't want to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. We've got to keep our minds set on what Christ has done, whether it's medicines, whether it's science, it's all from him and through him and back to him, and this is no exception. So at this point in the talk, usually you, people have gotten a good dose of some concerns that we have in the ACBC track um, of the philosophies that line up against a biblical view of man and how to confront that. So I always like to start off with this idea that we ought to be thankful for good medicine. Never have the idea that we, we don't like good medicine. Anybody who's had their gallbladder taken out is probably very happy for good medicine. I'm sure. Um, I mean, I'm a pharmacist, so right. So I'm, I'm thankful for the medicines that we have. This is a fallen world, and man is not the perfect man anymore. There's diseases and troubles. Uh, life is difficult, and we're thankful that we have good medicine to address those things. Now, with that said, I have another term that I like to use our culture, that we are a medication nation. Folks, we use a lot of medicine, and I've, I update these numbers whenever they come out every year for the BCDC guys. Prescription spending in 2020 was $535 billion. 
bigger than most economies in the world. So imagine that much money spent just on medicines. And look at some of the highest categories of medicines in 2018. What do you think is the number one class of medicines that we spend money on here in the U.S.? Most prescriptions. Antidepressants. You're very close. If you have the notes, you might be able to see this. Pain medications. Whoa. If you're talking about the opiate crisis, it's real. It's real. Gov That's a long story. I don't have time. Government created that problem, by the way. Any of you in the medical field may know that. We, we really created this opiate problem. The second one is cholesterol medicines. Wow, these are... If you cough twice at your doctor's office, they will give you a statin. You're going to get one. We like those drugs. Cough once. Maybe you won't get... The third category are the antidepressants, medications to lift our mood. How we deal with life's troubles, obviously, is a big thing that we address. Um, got a note here about younger people. Um, Look, the, the, the largest group, class of drugs rising, I would say, uh, prescription number are the CNS stimulants. These are drugs for ADHD, hugely common, and the use of antidepressants. This is not what we spend most of our money on in, in that age group and younger. It's the asthma medication. It's not that we have that many prescriptions. It's that they're, they're hugely expensive. Some of the medicines, any of you have had children with asthma, y'all go, oh yeah, the pricing of that is really kind of out of the roof. Some, some reasons why we overuse medication is that I think we have a, a wrong view of pain. Is pain a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. I mean, in the fact that God gave us pain, he wants us to know when something's not right. If I sit on attack... It's actually a favor to me, right, that I know what's going on. And if we have any neuropathies or something going on, you know, those, those aren't. We don't want those things. We don't want to be having numbness. So God is blessing us with a view of pain. I just included, you know, the government thing just because, gosh, they just created the problem. I remember, I don't know how many of you were around in the, in, uh, about 10 years ago when all of a sudden the pain scale was the most important thing when you went anywhere and they rated your pain and then the facilities and the doctors got graded on what you did about it. And I saw this coming and I thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a problem. And you could just see it happen. It was just unfolding. And our attempts to correct that, and there were a lot of, there have been, still are a lot of attempts to correct that, we create a large uh, demand for uh, illegal medication. So, Again, government was a large, large part of that. Marketing, oh my goodness. Watch the television, watch the radio. Uh, you know, all these psych medications to help you sleep. You know, and it's funny because the, when they show the commercial, they're always happy, you know. They're playing with the dog or having a barbecue and every, life is good. And then at the end, there's this real discongruence. At the end, they thought death and dismemberment. <laughs> all these terrible things. And they just say it while they're having the, doing the hot dogs. Like, what? It's kind of odd. But we do market these a lot, and the same is true for physicians, same is true for pharmacists. Uh, there's a long-term and short-term, long-term issue. We have a tendency to put you on a medication for a short-term issue, and it just never goes away. 
Um, I, I see people accumulate medications over long periods of time. I remember one lady had come in, an older lady, uh, so I do geriatrics, so I'm working with older people. One lady came in with 38 routine medicines, and when you added the part-time PRN medicines, it was really 52 orders, and, and if you looked at them, there were a lot of short-term issues that just kept hanging around, and she didn't want to let go of them because it fixed the problem and never came off of them, so they tended to accumulate. A lot of physicians uh, would have the mindset at that age that if it isn't broke, don't fix it. So sometimes they'll, they'll fuss at me. My, my job for a lot of the time is to come in and look at the medications they're on and say, okay, do you don't need this anymore, or it's time to come down on that dose. And the doctors kind of smile when they see me uh, and say, okay, what's going on today? And so because we're constantly trying to work off the, most, uh, the lowest, post, lowest dose uh, that is possible, it helps alleviate symptoms. Now, about psychotropic medications, uh, these are the most popular as a class uh, that we have. In that class are anti-anxiety drugs to calm you down, antidepressant medications to lift you up, hypnotics to help you sleep, and the antipsychotics to clear confused thinking. So if you're seeing, hallucinating, hearing voices, uh, anti-manic bipolar medications, uh, narcotic medications are included in this. The government also includes that as a class because they affect the psyche so much that, and they have to keep a handle on that. So it's kind of lumped together in a, uh, all this as a class. Um, the reasons are popular as well as the DSM. <clears throat> the di this is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and it is the it is the structure, structure by which the government gets paid and the clinicians get paid. They give you these codes, and you in the medical field know this already. They give you a diagnosis, and once they give you a diagnosis, there's a whole paradigm on what you do for that diagnosis, right? And there's the whole payment fee structure that's in there for the pharmaceutical companies, for the physicians, for the hospital, wherever you are. And so because of that, you end up on, and you may be, penalized in some ways if you have a diagnosis and you're not doing something about it, just so you're aware. Um, Long-term use of medications, it tends to develop a tolerance where they don't work as well and a dependence where you don't work as well when you come off of those medicines. They are an easy solution for negative feelings, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the prevalence of the chemical imbalance theory. We might get that at the end of this, of this week. Uh, that's kind of interesting. In 2019, the, the numbers that I, from the CDC, said that one out of six adults are on a psychoactive medication. I've also seen some stats that had one out of five. So we should expect that people uh, that we're counseling with, and many of us here today, were probably on some of these medicines. How do we look at that? biblically. All right, so I'm just now getting to our objectives. I feel like Dan Kirk. <laughs> it's a long introduction. <laughs> Can we get started now? Yeah. Goals and objectives. Part one is going to understand biblical psychosomatics. How has God designed us? This is going to be the brick groundwork, so walk with me through this today. Part two, we're going to discuss various categories of the psychotropic medications and a very important word, I think, that I want you to remember is homeostasis in medication use. And in part three, 
We're getting, getting to more than the nitty-gritty of, of the drugs themselves, counseling. Uh, we're going to talk about the DSM, problems that we have with that, and then some practical applications uh, when medicines are helpful, when they're not, and might even have time for some uh, examples. I have some resources listed at the end of the notes. If you have the big boy notes, they are uh, back on the, the larger set, and you're welcome to get that or get them from me. How many of you have already been through this track before? And remember this? Okay. Several hands going up. All right. We all could come up and do some of this probably if you want. We're going to start off next and talk about uh, how we are designed biblical psychosomatics. The Bible describes us as being a, a duplex. I think Jay Adams was credited for giving that term, but simply defining us as a two-part being. We have an inner man and an outer man. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man, so all those over 50 know that our outer man is decaying. Oh, get up in the morning, it's not like it used to be. Uh, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So we have this kind of odd thing for those of us who are a little farther and farther along in the faith. Can remember when you had all this energy and all this gusto, but you didn't know too much, <laughs> so you were kind of in a bad shape. As we've gotten older, we're a little more understanding of our spiritual sense of what we need to do and where we are, and uh, our love for Him, I think, grows, and yet our energy level is not where it used to be to get all these things done. But I think in a lot of ways that prepares us for heaven. The inner man is, we would, uh, in places in Scripture, talk about this being our heart. Not talking about the four-chambered organ, I meant this, the seed of our emotions is our heart. There uh, come our desires, our thoughts, our beliefs, our attitudes and choices come from our soul, the you that's here today that I really can't see because all I see is the outside of you. On the other side, we have the outer man, or we have the body, and an important organ called the brain that helps organize thoughts and everything. So the Bible presents us as, as a two-part being, and it really works very well by God's design. And do you, have you thought about this? This is such a good design that this is going to happen in heaven too, right? We're going to have a new body. So this is, the, this is a good kind of combination, and praise the Lord, our Savior has body as well. Pretty cool to think about. Now, we have a, a competing view that shows itself a lot in medication, uh, medicines, and science, and that is a monistic view, which means a view of one. So in this view, rather than your soul or your heart being the seat of your emotions, it literally it, it is really your brain. And the, the brain, which is a source of chemicals and electricity, imagine that, that's where all your thoughts and desires and actions come. It's just in this organ, the brain, and it whips stuff around and throws it out. And we respond with body responses, with feelings, words, actions, things that we do. This is a worldly perspective uh, known as naturalism in, in one way. And you, as you would assume, it leans heavily on physical solutions, including medications that, brain, that alter brain chemistry. This is kind of interesting that I... You know, I work with a lot of disciplines, and one of my go-to questions whenever I see the, the psychiatrists and the psychologists that come through, I'll just kind of get in the conversation with them, ask them about their day, and I ask them, can I ask you my one question about man? And they'll look at me with their head like this, 
and a little hesitant usually. But they, if they agree, I say, how many parts are we? Like, how are we made up? I mean, literally, they are the professionals in this area, right? They just look at me dumbfounded, like, well, there's different views. I'll have to get back with you on that. I had one, psycho- one psychologist answer me. She said, oh, no, we're two parts. She was so excited. I was like, why do you say that? She said, because I'm a believer in Christ. I know why he designed us. And I was just like, high five. That's so good. <laughs> we need more of you. Go talk to some of these people. It's great. So it's a real blessing to have Christian psychiatrists uh, out in the world. That's good. Um, it also kind of brings us to a question, really, then who is in charge? Uh, is it a body? Is it your brain that's in charge of your actions? For one who embraces naturalism, the brain is the final and ultimate cause of our behaviors. Here's some Aldous Huxley, the humanist. He says, what we feel and think are to, is to a great extent determined by our state of ductless, our ductless glands and viscera. What a sad view on man. That is it. His advice was to ignore death up to the last moment. And when it can't be ignored any longer, have yourself squirted full of morphine and shuffle off in a coma. And the reality, that happened to him. He had his wife inject him. And I want to, I want to remember that it's, it was a, a form of LSD that took him out, that his wife gave him. What a sad life and ending to think that. Um, but it brings up a, a larger question. How do you assign brain, uh, responsibility if we're just one person? It's just a brain, which is temporary, right? These bodies aren't going to last long. How do you, how do you put eternal blame on that? then why would Jesus have to die, right, for eternal life? But if this is all we are and it passes away, it doesn't seem to fit too well. One of the books that I've enjoyed reading, um, you may have seen this book, it's called Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. It's a great book. It just talks about the Bible. But I love in here, I'm applying uh, one of his stories. He talks about the six men, the six... Uh, men and an elephant, six blind men and an elephant, and he, he refers to them as the theologians, and they're trying to figure out what God is like, and each of them is grabbing, if you know the story, grabbing different parts of the elephant, oh, God is like this tail, he's like this ear, he's like this tusk, he's really hard, and they're all trying to explain what it's like, and it's, uh, young makes the comment that, you know, God you know, it is in, in a sense the elephant they're trying to um, explain. <laughs> and so the, um, so they're feeling, they're feeling the elephant. Anyway, the whole, this whole picture changes if the elephant could speak. If the, if the elephant could tell them what he was, we'd solve the whole problem. And his point is the scriptures do tell us who God is. They explain who he is, and the scriptures explain who we are. Right? It does. Uh, man is a two-part or a calm or duplex being. Second Corinthians 4.16, we just mentioned that. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, when, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So here's the separation that occurs at death. Matthew 10.28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body 
but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So we see both of those things working. In your notes, I've uh, listed a couple of references to Matthew 26, 41. That, that's just a section where Christ is in the garden, Gethsemane, and his disciples can't stay awake. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah, there's two things here that are happening. And I think it's important to realize there's a fight going on between these two it's God has joined them together, but there's a war in some sense happening with what we know and what our bodies and the flesh wants to do. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. I think this is highlights that for us. Verses 16 and 17. It's just a, a good verse to remind there's a fight going on if you're aware of it, particularly if you're a Christian. Galatians 5, 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So God sends his spirit with us, right, to live and to teach, and there's war going on. Are you aware that there's a war going on? Probably every morning. I know when I wake up, I feel like, oh, yep, there's the flesh. He's back. Um, God, God describes as that we are a two-part being. So then, man is eternal, his body is temporary, and for the wages of sin really is death, eternal death, separation from God. Ezekiel 18.4 is a great verse. This is in the context of people blame-shifting to their parents. If you know this section in Ezekiel, they're saying, hey, it's not our fault, it's our parents. We're having to suffer for what our parents did. And God responds, behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And here it is. The soul who sins will what? Die. So it's all written out for us in the scriptures to understand. So, yeah. So in, in this duplex model that we have, the mind of the heart is the mission control center of people. It brings up the old days of NASA and going to the moon. With our minds, this is Ed Welch, we are responsible before God and we respond to him either for or against. Our minds are the initiators. Our minds are the, our soul, our heart, the initiators of all moral action. The body then is the mediator of the moral, moral action rather than the initiator. In a sense, it is equipment for the heart. Okay, I have a picture of my son and I, Joel. We're out on vacation. You know, it's funny because I always ask him, I always tell him I'm putting his picture up there. Does he mind? He goes, oh, I don't mind. But which picture are you going to put up? So he's like, like, he's like, he pretends he doesn't care, but he does care. Um, anyway, I used this this last time when we did ACBC. This is us in Boston. You ever been to Boston? Yay. There's the Freedom Trail. You do a lot of walking in Boston. That's right, Boston. Yeah, we do a lot of walking in Boston. If you look on the left, that's day one. Okay? You can look at our expressions and see what's happening there. And on the next one is day two. Now, do you see anything common in both of those pictures? Something odd going on? Anything unusual? Look at our feet. 
you are real quiet. Okay, so on the first day, at the end of the day, he would take this picture. I look pretty well disheveled, by the way. But in reality, funny thing has happened. By the end of the day, my son said, oh, Dad, my feet are killing me. But I have these memory foam shoes. Anybody have any? Oh, man. I'm tired, but my feet feel great. Face doesn't look like it because it's a hot day. But I was feeling pretty good. Now, what happened on the second day is my, my son convinced me to let him have the memory foam shoes. We were the same size because he wanted, we wanted to have this experiment. On day two, here he is at the end. He's wearing my shoes. He says, my feet feel great. And I'm like, my feet killing me. So guess what happened on day three? I got my shoes back. That's what I did. I'm going to mess with that. But what I want to show you here is, if you wanted to figure out what our attitude was, you'd have to talk to us. I'll be honest with you, on this first day one, I don't look too hot there, pretty sweaty, but actually I felt pretty good. On the second day, a lady's taking our picture, and I kind of got up looking nice and smiling, put on the look, and I look happy, but I was in pain. So my point is, God has created us to be as a duplex person, order me to know you, sitting here today, I need to have a conversation with you. I need to find out beyond what your body is, although it tells me a lot, by the way, but I need to get deeper than that and ask good questions to find out what's going on in your life, what attitudes are you dealing with, and what issues are you dealing with. So keep this in mind. In this duplex model, we have a heart, and it is driving to our body, our desires, our thoughts, our beliefs, our attitudes and choices. Um, and it's sending that information to, we would think, our brain, where our bodies respond. The brain, we look at as the mediator of that, helping us to move arms and legs. So we are responsible to God for what our heart desires to do. Proverbs 4.23 is a great verse. And if you don't mind, if you could turn there just quickly. I've got verse 23 on the handout here. But I want to really start in verse 20. I think this is helpful. The, the verse 23 is a great verse that you, if you go through biblical counseling, you'll get this verse all day long. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Look back a little bit in verse 20. So you see this, it almost sounds intimate. Solomon speaking, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. It's almost like a father to a son and we're kind of listening in. But watch what happens here. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Keep them inside. But what, look what happens in verse 22. For they, for they are life to those. It just went plural. It went from me to you to them. Uh, and it will be health to all of their body. There. So it, what we're talking about is really, in a sense, context is just the scriptures and how they affect our heart and our desires, how they redirect our mind, redirect our heart. And when we treasure them, right, in our heart, we find joy in obedience and a changed life. And so, therefore, we have to watch over what we put into our heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. If that's true, be careful about what you stick in there. <laughs> The things that you read. Reset your mind in the scriptures daily. 
and teach yourself so that you'll be able to teach others. So we have this going on, but I also want to show you something else going on. While you're telling your body what to do, it's also having influences. It's a, main, it's a large influence upon your soul because it's also communicating back, the brain is mediating, uh, your feelings, your words, your actions. Uh, maybe you're just tired today. There's a lot of things that your body can be communicating to your heart. Maybe you, you're sick. Uh, maybe you have a disease. And maybe it's a brain disease. It's, that's going to affect how you feel. Uh, physical injury, maybe even a brain injury. Uh, obviously, pain can have a big effect. I have some stories, but I don't have time to tell you about that. Uh, physical or mental disabilities will have an effect. Being hungry or tired or sleepy, okay? <laughs> All those can have an effect on your soul. They, they feed back. Hormonal changes can do this. And I get permission when I do this talk from my daughter, Anna. Some of you have been around long enough to remember Anna. She lives up in Indiana. And she, he, she said I could share the story of a time where, uh, for, for an odd reason, she started losing weight, uh, excuse me, putting on weight, which was unusual for her. And she started being tired. She didn't want to get up out of bed. She was just really becoming depressed. And something else happened was a trigger. She started losing some of her hair. And we went, ah, uh, what's going on? So she went to the doctor, and she had really low thyroid which she'd, she'd picked up by uh, hereditary. And so she got that corrected, and guess what? <laughs> Weight came off. She, lights came back on. Uh, hair came back. And life was, was better. But, but she really went through a stage where she was extremely sad for a long time, where she figured this out. So all, you know, all these things were having an effect on, on your soul, and they were important. So uh, strengths and weaknesses, your strengths can probably tempt you toward pride. Your weaknesses probably tempt you towards fear, and both of those are problems. And so it makes sense that medicines, medications, good ones, illegal ones, will all also likely have an effect on you. Now from Welch, a person is always responsible before God for how he responds to these bodily influences. A person's body, including the brain, cannot make a person sin in such a way that he's not responsible before God. Now, maybe you have a little boy. I always come up with some name. How about little Johnny? And little Johnny is at the playground. He pushes little Timmy down and takes his ball. And the parent says, well, no, no, no. Leave little Johnny alone because he has ADHD. And, you know, he's not really responsible for what he did. Well, we would say, biblically, that little Johnny may have a filter that's gone that may have made him more impulsive to knock his friend down, but he's still responsible for God. A person that is confused, maybe they have dementia. I work with uh, the geriatric people. Oh, my goodness, their filter's gone. <laughs> In a lot of ways, it's so funny, because they'll just tell you how, how to chew the cabbage. I mean, it'll just come out. And some of it's funny, and we laugh with them. Some of it isn't. But, you know, there's, there's that buffer there. Listen, you have it too. You do. If we were to put on, uh, project the thoughts that we all had this morning on our way getting here, 
I don't know about you, I might not even show up. I may just go somewhere else. Because we're geared that way, right? But we're given, by God's grace, we're given this filter, our conscience, and we bring those things constantly under submission to the Lord, and He helps correct us. The other part of that is that the brain cannot make a sin in such a way, uh, excuse me, cannot keep a person from following Jesus in faith, in obedience. It cannot make a sin, is the, excuse me, a corollary of the fact the brain cannot make a sin is the brain cannot keep a person from following Christ. So we love Romans 8:38. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us, separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Um, I always reminded of C.J. Mahaney, if y'all know him, pastor and author, how he talks about his coming to Christ. So he was, he was on illegal drugs at the time. But the Spirit of the Lord grabbed hold of him, and that didn't stop his conversion. And he looks back at that night, and he said, you know, nothing can stop the love of God when it's time. It's an encouragement for us to be diligent about who, how we minister the gospel to people, even if you think that they can't really understand, really ought to be trusting the Lord with those things. All right, we've laid the groundwork of who we are and how God has designed us. We're going to talk a little bit about part two now of the psychotropic medications and how they work, the theories of how they work. Uh, I like the way Laura Hendrickson wrote... um, and she had so many good things to say about how you organize medicines that help me think about how to place them. And I love the fact that, and she includes that in part of her book as well, in her lectures, that there's two, there's so many medicines to think about. How do we categorize these? And I like how she did that. She called you know, one class of drugs the medications that improve the way you feel, and then another class of drugs that help clear, confused thinking. So those two hangers, if you can keep those in your mind, we're going to kind of flow into these different categories. The medications that improve the way you feel will be drugs like relaxants to calm you down when you're anxious, medications or stimulants that that lift your mood up, like antidepressants. Uh, We also would probably put the pain medications in that, in the feelings category. And then the other side of that is medications that clear confused thinking, these would be like the antipsychotics um, that we use to people to stop hearing the voices and um, you know and talking to God and different things. Antipsychotics do that. Mood stabilizers that affect people that who suffer from things like bipolar, which are really dr- dramatic mood swings. So those are those are all medications that help clear confused thinking. So if you keep those in your mind. As we go into this and into next week, uh, we'll touch on it again. I think it'll help you think about them rightly. So let's talk about medications, actions, and theories. So in reality, psychotropic medications, their actions are unknown. It's kind of funny if you read the package inserts. On occasion, I go back and see if anything's changed when I read those. And I'll just flip them open, now it's on, you know, on the computer, and you read through, and it says, this is, this is what we think is happening but in reality, we really don't know how it's working. Uh, so you have to say that up front. Now, on, 
if you follow the receptor theory and how we're given certain neurotransmitters by design that God has created us, we can show how some of these uh, drugs work in affecting uh, common neurotransmitters that you probably have heard like serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine. All these are, and there's lots of subsets of, of those categories, actually hundreds of different uh, neurotransmitters that we've identified. All those um, we can see in some cases these medicines having an effect. So you can take some tissue samples, you can do things in mice, and you can see, yes, we know they're having some sort of effect. What we don't know is how that translates to making you, your depression better. There's no connection for that. Um, we're going to talk about the chemical imbalance theory. I think we'll probably have time to discuss that. You need to remember that medications in general do not target one location. It's not like a silver bullet to one place but they are distributed widely in the body and including the brain, various degrees on how that happens. A lot of physiochemical reasons why some will affect the brain more than others. But the important thing is we really can't test that those changes, the neurotransmitter changes, are the actual reasons that, they're, that they've been uh, benefit. How many of you have heard of the, if you've been around medicine long, you'll know, uh, the chemical imbalance idea? How many of y'all have heard of that, it's pretty common. You hear it just about everywhere. Uh, it's important for us to get a, a grasp on that because it's so common. The chemical imbalance theory ha has never been proven. In fact, it's been disproven several times in several different ways. Um, by the way, ACBC put out a really good s series of lectures this last year and it addresses some of this very issue, which I think is really good. It goes way back into the 30s and 40s uh, by several different physicians, and it's well done. I'll bring a copy of that next week if somebody wants to take a look at that, or maybe it's probably on their website by now. So the chemical imbalance theory, really, it, it comes from, uh, goes back to the 30s and the 40s when we were starting to get a great, uh, huge amount of knowledge on how to cure disease. And so we had an idea of what was really broken in your body, and then here's some things that we can do either surgically or with medications to fix those things. So, you know, and, and that just kept developing. This medical model was, became a really medical breakthrough, especially with the antibiotics that came out at the turn of the century. We can see what bacteria that is. We can give you an antibiotic, and all of a sudden, it's gone, and you feel better. So we're able to treat real pathology where something really is broken, we see the problem, we fix the cure. Think of a diabetes. You're missing what? In diabetes, type 1, I should say. Insulin. Thank you. I said that all at the same time. Good. Uh, insulin. And so we've discovered how to make that hormone. How do you make insulin? And so these are real medical breakthroughs. But the problem is that the psych, psych, psychiatric industry didn't have that. Uh, there was no pathology. There was no, nothing broken that they could find to say, yeah, it's broken, here's how we fix it. And so the medical model really didn't fit. Um, but that didn't stop the psychiatric industry. Uh, so what really happened is, when they started coming out with some of these medications, it, it really started backwards. So um, I'm really feeling depressed and really bad, and so when I take this medication, I feel better, at least for a while I feel better. So that means that something was broken, and that's really where uh, the whole idea of the chemical imbalance theory came from. Highly promoted, this might surprise you, 
by the, by the pharmaceutical industry. They really like that model because, hey, if it's broken, we can fix it and we have medicine for you. So we'll talk a bit more about drugs like Prozac and some of the real common drugs that came out uh, as a result of that. The problem is that that came under increasing scrutiny. It's hugely popular. Uh, about, oh, probably 20 years ago, all these studies came out and just trying to say, well, that just can't work because, and showing all these studies that, that there is no chemical imbalance that we can prove that's happened to a person. And so you came out with some of these statements. In 2011, Ronald Pies, a real popular psychiatrist, he was editor-in-chief of Psychiatric Times. So read, listen to this quote. In truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always, did you catch that? Always. Kind of an urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. Well, I can tell you that it was assumed for decades that that's the way things were. We shouldn't say decades, for, for years. And it was well put out there, this is the way we, how we treat people. So Thomas Insel, National Institute of Mental Health in 2012, gave this interview the entire field, catch that, entire field, <laughs> has been driven by this idea that you could think of everything as chemical. This is a really good quote. This might be true in diseases like diabetes where the problem is too little insulin, but it doesn't translate over to psychosis or mood disorders. So this may be a small event for you to listen to this morning at Calvary Bible Church. But this was a huge problem that came up back then. It was a big shift, a big ripple. And I was reading some blogs even recently. A few years ago, I found this comment section. They were just discussing medicines. And here's one, here's one comment. The notion of chemical imbalance is used all the time to explain what is going on inside our heads, and in particular, to keep us from feeling guilty. Yeah, that's a problem. About being depressed. You see, if it's chemical imbalance, then it's not our fault. So what is it you'd be feeling guilty about? What is it that your conscience is telling you that something's wrong, and you feel guilty about it? God has given us a conscience. We're made to feel guilty about whatever we're not doing, or things that we did that we shouldn't be doing, and we feel the weight of that. So this is a problem. And if you have people that you're counseling, either yourself or someone else, we never want to, we hear times where we're blame shifting, we can't, we don't want to let that happen. And part of this talk is to remind us that we can't blame shift anybody else uh, or our brain or any other thing other than ourselves for what we've done. Uh, Dan likes to talk about uh, the bottle and the water, about whatever comes out of our heart uh, is whatever was inside of it. That's a good example. I was talking to someone this week and they were confessing that they, they got angry while they were driving their car. I thought they were talking about me, but I don't know. That's too personal. Uh, and then I was kind of reminding them, so why did you act that way? Well, so-and-so cut me off, and they weren't acting right, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's me too. Uh, but in reality, my anger really was not because of them. They, they may have mistreated me and did something wrong, but my response is my response. Whatever came out of me 
was what was already inside. It just had to be shooken up a little bit and opened out, and there it all came. So we never want to find that that's happening. So what I've done here is I've added now medications into this duplex model. Here's our heart, our desires, our thoughts, all this two-way communication going on. And now we just added medication to that, which makes sense that the moods and feelings of the psychotropic medications are going to have our effect for good, maybe for ill. There's side effects going on. And that you would, you would think that's going to be an influencer on your heart. Does that make sense? Okay. Ooh, here's a question. Is medications, are they sinful? Ouch. Ken, what have you done now? Is it a sin to take psychotropic medications? I'm tempted just to leave you all there and let you all ruminate over that for the week. <laughs> and I'm sure it would bring up lots of conversation. But let me, let me be clear to you and say that the only thing that is sinful is what God declares to be sinful. Yeah? Only what God tells us. In the garden, God had to come to Adam and tell him, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you can't do. This is what you should do. And all along, God is telling us how we should think, how we should we act. Sin is always defined by the scriptures. Psychotropic medications are not inherently sinful. And you should not feel that way when you talk to other people, or if you take them yourselves, it is not a sin. On the other side, could it be used sinfully? Okay, I usually give the analogy of my favorite dessert. Susanna knows this. Uh, blueberry banana cream pie. Oh, I love blueberry cream. Okay, it's almost gotten surpassed by peach cobbler. Uh, if you get a good peach cobbler, you've got a good day. So I can, I can take some peach cobbler and use it sinfully. Not only am I happy for having my peach cobbler, I'm a little upset that you're getting some of mine as well, right? <laughs> That's a sinful use, right? Medications obviously can be used in a sinful manner, particularly if we're using them to mask sinful behavior. If you are feeling guilty, rightly, because of something that's in your life. I hope we all struggle with guilt. That means the Holy Spirit's at work within you. If you're dealing with the guilt in, in, in some ways of what we've done and what we haven't been doing, that's there for a reason. And taking medications to squelch that, whether you're counseling someone or working with yourself, is wrong, right? It is outside of what God has designed for us on how we handle problems. That'll help answer the question. So we're going to stop right here, and we're going to get into some real nitty-gritty discussions on what these drugs do and how they react in our body and how you should think about them rightly and possibly if they're used wrongly. So I hope that's helpful. Um, we're going to close in prayer, and I do not know if we have anyone doing announcements today, but such as it is, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, Father, for all that you've provided for us uh, in your word for life and godliness. Lord, I pray that we would remember to set our eyes on you uh, as the preeminent one and what you've done on the cross, that that would bring encouragement and hope to us. Lord, I pray they would set our minds on that. Lord, we are people in need of hope. I pray that, Lord, that we would understand the way we use medicines rightly, 
and that it would not, that even those would be used to glorify your name and how they're used and how we apply them and in the counsel that we give. So we ask your mercy and grace on us. We pray for Randy as he brings the message this morning, and we pray you'd bless the rest of our day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.